I think the biggest challenge still is the ability of our cultures and our companies to absorb the pace of technology change. That's almost more challenging than developing the technology itself. Understanding what is the meaning of this technology in my context? What does it mean beyond just the utility of it? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Jim Urchner. We are talking about how to take lean startup into, in his case, large organizations. But I think most of the things that we talk about and the challenges that he has seen and overcome in launching many businesses inside large organizations are applicable even to some of the small or medium-sized clients that I've helped with their innovation challenges He's currently honorary professor at Aston Business School. He's the editor-in-chief of Research Technology Management, which is a peer-reviewed journal for practitioners of innovation. He was previously VP of Global Innovation at Goodyear, where he led development of new businesses and helped launch five businesses on three continents. He worked at Pitney Bowes, and he was also VP, a VP at what is now Verizon and was Bell Atlantic. 25 years of working across systems, building practices, taking lean startup methodology and applying it in big business. Fantastic conversation with Jim. Many of the things we talk about, how do you structure it? Where do you put the money? Who's in charge? How do you get sales to not be a blocker? We talk about all of those things. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will as well. My name's uh, Jim Eichner and I have had a career in corporate innovation. So I've worked in a variety of industries and my career sort of has gone on a trajectory from first process innovation and then new product innovation and toward the end of the career, launching new businesses. So a general trajectory is figuring out how to make different types of innovation work inside uh, large corporations. And when you started on this journey, where did you think you were going? What did you do at university? Okay, I, uh, I studied engineering, uh, mechanical engineering. In graduate school, I focused on combustion. And I thought that I would do R&D and it would focus in the, in the area of energy and combustion and so forth. And I did for about a year and a half. And then I moved from work in the oil industry on uh, some combustion-related enhanced oil recovery to doing ice mechanics and then AI. And then I realized that the world is a big place. And I started figuring out, sort of trying to figure out how do you make this stuff have an impact? 
So I, I started in research labs, but how do you make an impact on the business? That became uh, an area of focus for me. Where did you first come across Lean Startup then? And why did you think that that solved problems you were having? Or maybe it was maybe it's like, what problems were you having that made you go looking for a solution? I was trying to, uh, at Goodyear, launch new businesses. My job was, how do you build uh, new revenue streams and new businesses outside the core tire business? And we were doing experimental work. There were a number of platforms we were working on. I had a group that was very willing to go out in the world and do experiments. And I don't know when I first heard the term lean startup. It may have been from a former colleague who said, you ought to look into this. And I I did. And then I started learning more about it, first from Eric Reese, then from Steve Blank and others. And we started experimenting with it as a way of accelerating our learning inside Goodyear and as a way, I think, also of building data that could help sell the innovation inside. But what we found as well is a lot of the things you want to do with Lean Startup, they're part of the core practice, can cause anxiety inside the corporation. So if you want to go out and talk to customers, that's great. Everybody should, but the sales force has some reservations or you want to... (laughs) Show an idea to uh, to a customer, and that's great. But legal, uh, and I had this issue at Pitney Bowes as well. Legal was concerned about compromising intellectual property, and it had the same sort of story happens with procurement, with IT, with marketing, with engineering. And so, one of the things I got interested in is if you want to do lean startup, what do you have to do in addition? to make people comfortable with it inside a corporate setting. I've got a contextual question to sort of wind you back up a little bit before we dive into that. So what was, when you were at Goodyear thinking about setting up these businesses, what was, what was Goodyear's turnover? Uh, about $15 billion a year, I think. Okay. So, <laughs> so, tiny. Something. <laughs> so what size of new business did you need to create? So Goodyear gave a damn. Did it have to be something that was like 100 million or? Well, you know, people had aspirations, but I think there was an understanding that uh, you don't get to 100 million without going through 10 million and you don't get to 10 million without going through 2 million. So what we, uh, with the CFO, I sort of had a discussion about what are the objectives and they were on the, uh, you know, let's incubate 10 businesses. uh, Let's take three of them that we decide to actually go to market with. And let's look at an aggregate revenue stream of more like 25 million. And and that wasn't because that's the end state, but it was because you need to have some targets that matter at some level. You know, and, and then once you've launched businesses, they have the, if you invest in them, they have the ability to grow to be of much larger scale. So it was, they had to have very positive margins and uh, have the potential to grow. But the target wasn't all about near-term hitting $100 million. I've seen a lot of companies end up failing because they think that if you don't get to $100 million in a few years, it's not a business that's good for you. In fact, look at many, many startups were small until they got big. Oh, well, yeah, it's, it's like that overnight success that's a 15-year-old company. Absolutely. Um, and, and you can, I mean, you look at Apple, it's pretty flat, and then it, 
then it spiked. Starbucks was pretty flat and then it spiked. So a lot of these businesses take a long time to mature. So it's interesting to dig into. I mean, the other thing is if you're a venture capital fund, you are thinking about you probably tell the world your hit rate's one in 10 and it's probably more like one in 20, right? And so again, it's that you've got to have breadth because VCs aren't giving their money away to people they think are going to fail. They're giving their money away to people they're absolutely sure are going to win and still only one in 20 win. Yeah, right, exactly. So so, so Goodyear, you're going to have to start a lot of businesses for one of them to ever be 100 million. Yes, and you, you do have to take a portfolio view you take a portfolio view, though, within opportunity spaces. So advanced services was an opportunity space at Goodyear. And the idea is that when you do that, when you fail, you're still failing forward. You've learned something that you can use in future endeavors. So a failure isn't a dead loss. And VCs operate the same way. They pick an area of focus and they maybe fund multiple companies within that area uh, of opportunity. And then the other thing VCs do that companies are less good at doing is when they have proven a business, they bet to win. So whether they build the business through acquisition or through organic funding or in in some other way, they're, uh, they're making the bet to win. I think the large companies tend to have less problem, I think, with generating good businesses than they do with making the bet to win that gets you to the hundred million. Huh. And is that is that a perception of risk thing? Or is it where where does that I mean, we're still at a high level, we're not into any of the dynamics yet, but is that what drives that inability to invest to win? Is are we going back to just sort of resource allocation at this point? Or I mean, yeah, it's a combination of things. So resource allocation, you have to take something away from the core business to invest. That's a, a major factor. Another factor is that the executives don't necessarily spend the time in the new ecosystem to learn about who's there, who the competitors are, how good the business is, what the customers think about it, and so forth. The businesses tend to be reviewed, and the data you can bring into the conference room isn't visceral. It's data. And uh, people are going to bet on something that they believe in, not just that they have the numbers on. And then, of course, they have to explain to the street why are you taking this money and instead of returning it to shareholders, stick to your knitting? You have to have a very strong ability to tell the story. And a VC has already told that story. They generally will focus in a particular opportunity space. And because they're doing that, they see a lot of deal flow through that space, but they also spend time with the customers and the other players in the ecosystem. That puts them in a position to bet to win. And I think companies not only have difficulty creating the deal flow, but creating the time to uh, to get comfortable. Yeah, the time at a senior enough level to make an informed decision. But also, the LPs have put the money into the fund, and the VCs want to invest the money. So the inertia is towards investment, whereas in a large corporate, the inertia is to in- carry on investing in this core. Because as you said, you've already got to now explain the narrative to the street. It's like, you know, it's got to be compelling because it's going to dent my stock price. So, yeah. Exactly. And some companies are comfortable with that. Amazon's very comfortable with it. If you don't like the earnings, don't invest. They are are comfortable because their growth trajectory is so strong that they're, you know, willing to take whatever short-term 
hits they might have to take. As a result, I think they've become what I would like to think is an archetype of the of the business in the future. It uh, you know it has a core business, and it Amazon in particular is able to leverage its assets into new opportunity spaces and create great new businesses. And they do it. I don't know if they use the terminology around lean startup, but it's very customer centered. It's very experimental. It's they incubate and then. The big differential for me is they make a, a huge bet to win. And then another, uh, another difference is they're willing to take an asset from one business, leverage it to grow a different business, even if it has challenges, even if it creates some challenges for the core. So opening up the customer base and the storefronts and fulfillment by Amazon to competitors was very controversial, I understand. And yet it's created an entirely... Uh, you know, much broader business. Opening up the software infrastructure, which was, in many people's views, the crown jewels, to create Amazon Web Services was also controversial because it's taking a source of competitive advantage and sharing it to create a new business. And I think that that a lot of companies have trouble sharing their customer base with their new venture or sharing their service network. So, those challenges are, are big challenges. Do you know, when you were talking about building a venture and then saying, let's talk to our existing customers and the sales team getting upset about that, that I think that is, um, you know, who owns the customer and for whose benefit, right? And I see that all the time, right? We're going to create a new service revenue. Okay, well, how are we going to sell it? It's more complicated than our previous product transactional thing. So we're going to need some new sellers Oh, well, you can't talk to the the sales team won't let you talk to our customers, right? Because you're taking money out of that, but their back pocket, right? Because this is a competitive product or service to something we already sell. And it's just, it's like, right, well, we'll just give up then, shall we? <laughs> let's not, let's not try. Almost, uh, almost worse than that is trying to force something new through the existing sales channel. It's very attractive for people to believe that we can use our sales, our existing sales force to sell something new. I think that's almost never the case. At the same time, you need to partner with the existing sales force. Why doesn't it work though, right? Because you must have tried and failed. So yes, why didn't yeah. it work? It does, uh, Partly it's incentives. Partly it's where people have a comfort zone. Oftentimes the new business requires you to talk to people at a different level or in a different role inside the target customer. It's a matter of time management which is going to lead to the highest return for the sales guy. One thing that can help is to partner. So you can use the, the sales force to open up the door and uh, you know someone who's, who's got the new offering to sell that new offering. Um, oftentimes the incentives can be so that the uh, existing sales force will get credit even if the sale happens in this new venture. So you can have sort of multiple ways of getting credit. Sometimes it's just they get credit for the product that gets pulled through and you know someone else gets credit for the new revenue stream. There are ways of working it through. Sometimes the resistance is just that they're concerned that you'll promise something that can't be met. One thing that was very helpful at Goodyear was that the sales force was able to use the new offer as a way of opening the doors with customers who just didn't want to hear about the next tire release. But if you said, look, we've got something from R&D, 
It's a new thing. We think it might, we want to test it with some of our best customers. People would open up the door. Sometimes that would lead to at least testing of the new product or uh, of, of our core product. So, you know, the, it, it, what I would say is it's not an impossibility, but if you just try to brute force it, it probably won't work. But if you sit down and say, okay, what, what would, do we want to do? What are the risks? How can we militate against those risks? Uh, and if we start selling it, who benefits? I think you can find ways of making it work, but it's not going to work just because you give someone a, uh, a new product in their toolkit and you give them some training and, a, uh, and an incentive structure. It's, it's got to be uh, managed differently. What were these new businesses that you created at Goodyear? What type of things were you, services were you bringing to market? So the, uh, they were in different segments. It was, they were different uh, businesses. So commercial trucking was an area where we got traction for long haul fleets and for just in time or critical cargo fleets. We introduced a service that was based really on predictive analytics using information, real-time information from tire pressures in the vehicle to predict when there was a risk of a roadside failure. And we processed that so we could predict in enough advance that we could say either you've got an emergency, stop immediately, or finish what you're doing, deliver your load, and then make sure you care for this particular issue or it's just routine maintenance. So we made it digestible in that way. That was one business. It, uh, you know, it's, it's a business that created significant value, not only in direct value of avoiding um, a roadside repair, but also in better customer satisfaction and uh, you know more on-time delivery and so forth. Uh, and another segment where it was more fleets that stayed closer to home, it was just taking over everything having to do with tires. So we would specify, buy, retread, manage, mon- manage the inventory of, monitor, uh, keep maintained, et cetera, everything having to do with tires. That was an example where, and so so you're taking a load off of the shoulders of a company. You're doing the job better, probably at a comparable or a lower uh, cost, but you can't sell that to the guy who you were selling the tires to. You've got to sell that. <laughs> no, because that's, that, that's, that's hello, turkey, do you fancy Christmas? Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, the, but, but it's a, you know, it's a, a business model that works. And, you know, it's used in industries as varied as uh, Rolls-Royce and Castrol uh, that makes specialty lubricants. So we made that business work as well. But the existing sales force would be challenged in trying to sell that. They have different contacts, a different orientation. Different value prop. Different value prop entirely. Yeah. So, look, uh, talk me through then the elements of the lean startup thing. So I don't know, should we pick one of those businesses and say, right, well, let's talk through the gestation of this business sure, from a lean startup perspective and, and, and what challenges you had internally and how you overcame them? Sure, we could, we could do that. Let's start with the one we called uh, proactive solutions. And that was where we're monitoring the uh, tires in real time and using predictive analytics to identify when there might be a risk of a roadside failure. So the first thing was someone had the idea. We had no idea how much value it created. And uh, 
you know, it, it was in fact an idea from a technical perspective that had been around for a while. One of the things we did was just an experiment. We didn't have the algorithms yet, but we did an experiment with a few fleets where we actually monitored, we alerted them whenever there was just a low pressure alert. And we learned from that that uh, only one of the two fleets paid attention when we issued an alert because the other thought <laughs> is spam. We learned that the messages were not refined enough. You had to tell them more what to do rather than just something's wrong. And we learned that we needed to notify different parties. You didn't notify the driver. You need to work through the dispatcher. So we learned a lot from that. We also captured all the data and we used the data together with some machine learning to see, could we predict this in more advance? And we found we could. So that was experiment one. We also measured how often were the roadside failures, how many of them could we predict? So we got some indication of the value we created. Uh -huh. One of the challenges for that business was the providers that we started with wanted all the value. You know, we couldn't make money. We had to invent some of our own technology in order to make that work. Oh, what? So what? which, which providers? What, the people who are providing you the tire monitoring gear? Some of the, some of the electronics. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, we had to use people who provided sensors, people who provided electronics, people who provided the, uh, the cloud framework and so forth. There were companies that would do that for you. We had to do some of that for ourselves. So we learned something about willingness to pay, something about value creation, something about cost to deliver. But we knew that we had something that if we delivered the right thing, customers wanted. And that was very important to know. And we learned, we knew how much value it was. We needed then to get to, we went into incubation, even though it was not yet economic. We knew uh -huh. that we could make it economic with investments in technology, but we went to market to learn what did it take to sell? What were the ancillary costs? What relationships did we have to have with the customer, with our own service network and so forth? One of the challenges was once the business was demonstrated, how can you roll it out? How do you get the larger organization on board? And there was a very strong leader of the commercial tire business who didn't dictate it. He brought his organization along. He introduced the idea. He heard their concerns. He asked people to go out and talk to the people they thought would have uh, resistance to it, learn from them, bring that stuff back so that we could uh, address it. And eventually he built a groundswell for a business that could scale. He also made the decision to bring in someone outside the business who had a services background to lead it and to you know give it a new, uh, a broader focus. So there were challenges along the way in doing the experiments, you know, there were legal liability had concerns about them. Procurement had concerns uh, about sharing too much of the value of the business to suppliers before we had done an RFP. Uh, the salespeople had a concern about, you know, how would we go to market and what would their role be? Each of these things had to be worked through, you know, the service network also. Uh, they were going to lose business because they were going to lose roadside service, which was profitable business, but they were going to gain in terms of installation of the new devices. And when we routed failures, whether they're Goodyear or not tires, we were able to route them to our service network. So people had to get comfortable with the economics. There were a lot of things that at first 
present themselves as just resistance, then you understand, oh, it's resistance with a reason, and you understand the reason, then you can do an experiment to gather data, and then you can bring people on board. And so the, the, there was a, a lot of that over 10 months or a year. When you started, did you have a funding profile in place? It sounds as though you're hypothesis testing along the way. So did you have a, I don't know, an amount of money to spend? Or were you coming back internally all the time asking to fund the next sort of bit of learning? So, yeah, that was one thing that was, I think, extremely effective at Goodyear. I had a budget to do the exploration. And then there was a separate budget that was sequestered funds to do incubation. So to go right. to market at small scale, that was a, it was a, a meaningful sum of money. I could not spend it without getting the CEO's approval. But if we had a business that we wanted to bring to market, we didn't have to wait for the next budget cycle. He didn't have to go find the money somewhere for us to do it. The money was available. It didn't have to, the business unit that we're, we worked with to make it happen, didn't have to come up with the money to incubate the business, to learn about it. Right. In market. I think that's something very few companies do. I think it's very farsighted, in fact. The money isn't spent if it's not needed, but it's there if it is needed. So both of those, having the resources to do the exploration, do those experiments, not you know fail a lot, try in different areas, do the portfolio view. And then when you have something that will take a, you know, a reasonable amount of money to incubate, uh, you've got sequestered funds. I think that worked well. Yes. Were you running multiple experiments at the same time or were there multiple people like you running multiple things using the sequestered funds? We had an organization that had dedicated people for doing customer insight. I don't know, uh, half a dozen at first anyway. And then we had dedicated people for doing the business experiments, business model innovation. And then when we got to incubation, we staffed for incubation. Sometimes that meant some people went with it. And we were running a lot of different programs in parallel at the same time. We were learning and some things, if it didn't work, we might pivot or we might decide we'd learn that this won't work and then we would stop and uh, the team would move on to a different project. And again, I think that's necessary. You can't, you can't make one bet in an area and expect that you've got the winner. You've got to make enough bets and you've got to be clear-eyed about the data you're getting in the world. If the data is telling you this isn't going to work, then you got to accept that data. Uh, we did an experiment, for example, when we were looking at a, a concept for a green tire, a tire that had a high recycled content. We had a concept, we had a way that we could do something that was more like 70% recycled material. Um, we thought it would be attractive to a certain subsegment of customers. Uh, so we didn't know though. We mocked up a tire, we called it the New Earth tire, we created marketing materials, and we went and sold it in two of our uh, sales centers. And if people bought it, then we tried to understand what was motivating them. We let them know this was a research project and we provided them with a coupon toward their uh, the purchase of their next tire. And if they didn't, we tried to explore why not. And what we learned from that was that people were some people were interested, at least in these California centers, in the concept, but they weren't willing to pay more 
or to compromise along any dimension of merit in terms of the uh, the tire. We knew that, along with some other experiments we did, meant that the thing wasn't a concept, at least at that point in time, that we could make viable. So that's why we stopped. What I love about that is that so many projects fail because somebody has an idea and they'd say, hey, you know what? We could make a recycled tire and we could sell it because like, we're in the tire business. Like, So here's a widget. We could. How do we sell more widgets? And somebody bloody go and make one. And only after they'd made it and bought a plant and put it in a plant and then tried to sell it, would they find out that their original hypothesis is completely wrong. And so in this case, you did what I speak to people about all the time, which is we have an idea. Why don't we try and sell it to people? And they were, we haven't got anything to sell. It's like, well, why don't we see if anyone would buy it if we did have it? Let's just imagine, right? So here's a tire. We'll call it Green Earth. Is that what you said you call yeah, it? New Earth. Uh, and New Earth, right? We'll call it New Earth and we'll, we'll create all the marketing material as if it's a real thing and we'll see if anyone buys it. Shit, somebody tried to buy it. Okay, why? And then that whole, as you say, that whole not prepared to compromise. Whereas, you know, if you look at something like a Tesla, people are prepared to compromise on build quality because they're they're saving the planet or you know on the original iphone they were prepared to compromise on call quality right and in this case with the tire you couldn't find a dimension where people were prepared to compromise so the thing's a non-starter until something changes right and it may it may come back in another form at some point in the future but i think that that's so often people fail to do two things that i think are really critical one is to just before you invest in in it, take out the simplest prototype, make some sort of prototype, learn what people like about it, what they don't like about it, whether they think it's a stupid idea or whether they get excited about it. That's one thing you can do very easily and you can do it very early. And then the, the second thing people fail to do is get a good estimate, at least a range of how much value it creates for the customer. You can't really create a business if you don't know how much value you're creating. If you're creating just enough value to cover the costs, it's going to be very hard to invest in a new channel or a new business model. Uh, you need to know where you're creating value and why customers care. And people spend way too little time there, even after all the discussion we've had about it. I mean, I've seen examples in companies that I've been in where that's happened. You know, we've, we've created a product, we've taken it to market. And then I said, you know what? The price point's just wrong. Like I've, you know, I've gone out now into the marketplace and the price point's wrong. It needs to be this. And they said, oh, no, we can't do that. That'd be less than it costs to make because they'd engineered the product for the wrong customer and the wrong problem. Absolutely. You know, they'd solved their problem beautifully, but it wasn't, it wasn't a commercially viable one. When you think about that value, you're thinking about what's it worth to the customer to solve and therefore... We have to be, our price point is at the top end of that value. How much margin can we get? And also how many of all, all them are there? And then we're like, the, what's the total value in the market, total addressable market? Could this be a $100 million business? I mean, unless you do that work, you don't know. You don't know. And I think that you, you know, you're touching on something as well. I think oftentimes in companies, I talk to my clients all the time where people need to justify working in an area before they know anything about it. And, you know, they need to know how big the market is and how much share we could get. Those are things that are unknowable. And uh, you need to do work in order to figure it out. So there are different kinds of business cases. There's the, the how much value we create and then how many people could we 
potentially go after. That's a uh, that's one model. And then there's a model that goes more deeply at what I call the single customer PNL for different segments. What does a PNL actually look like based on all the information we have so far? That might be a range. And then there's something that looks closer to a business case, but that's after you've probably been through incubation and you've learned something about willingness to pay, cost of sales, cost of service, cost in the real world to actually build the thing. And, and I think people tend to gravitate to the business cases they're used to seeing that are based on a business they already understand and customers they already understand. And it just doesn't work when you're doing innovation. What else haven't we touched on? So there's uh, the lean startup. Uh, I break it into two pieces. One is the piece of how to learn. And we've talked a bit about business experiments, you know, saying an, setting a hypothesis, building a minimum viable product or some prototype, testing it and learning. The other part is the part I would call the what to learn. They call it the, uh, Eric Reese called it the value hypothesis, the business hypothesis, and the growth hypothesis. And I think in the, in the lean, in the startup world, all those things are happening at once. You try something, you see who buys it, you build from there, your business model is evolving, you're trying to figure out how to grow all at once. I found in a corporate setting, it's very useful to break those into pieces. What is the customer value proposition? How much value can you create for a customer? And that's all about design. And then the second is, what business model can you use? Here's where I think there's an awful lot that we, we are still learning, which is about how do you develop a business model? I don't know if you've read any of Adrian Slowatsky's books about profit and profit models. He makes the point that there are a limited number of coherent business models. And so this is more a process of making sure you consider all the viable archetypes and then select one that you can actually use to capture value. And then, of course, do the business experiments to take the risks out of it and so forth. But the uh, I think business model innovation is still an area that people are still learning about in practice and still doing a bit of stumbling forward. And then, of course, incubation is is the growth phase. Your goal is to say, does it work in the real world and can we make it grow? So I think that's the, if I look at the whole picture, that would be the lean startup. And adapting each each stage has its own set of antibodies or resistances or fears that it induces, which is what my book is about. I think the business model, the business modeling thing is, I find it fascinating because I find often one of the things that I'm doing with clients is just some pattern matching, which is exactly, I sort of say, well, look, what are you giving away? Is there value there? Well, why aren't you charging for that? If you're not charging for it, where does the value come back to you? And uh, which customers are generating the most profit, which are generating the most costs? Could it be recurring revenue? Could this be a subscription? And often I'm asking people, one of the things from Jim Collins, you know, what is your profit per X? If you have to sum up your economic engine, can we sum it up in a simple profit per X equation? Most of the time, well, I don't actually know that I've ever asked that question and got an answer the first time around. You know, you have to dig. And then the client realizes that it's only partially true for some customers. And so there's a lot of cost or service cost or uh, wasted effort in a whole swathe of their customer base because those customers don't meet the profit per X because their business has moved and they haven't done anything about the tail. 
it sounds like you have a lot of uh, good basic questions to ask. What I see happening with innovation is that people default to something that's very close to their core business. And so even if you know they default, for example, we could have sold the services business I talked to you about. We could have just sold the equipment as another thing we sold in our service centers, or we could have bundled it with our product and you could only get it if you bought Goodyear product. Or we could have introduced a services model where you pay for the service, or we could have paid for results. I find it important to tell people those are all sort of archetypal business models. Yeah. Pick three, at least three, and run the numbers on them. See what they look like. See what will work. Test them with customers. See what their response to them is. And the reason for that is a major reason for businesses either never getting off the ground on the one hand because the cost structure is too high or businesses that leave a huge amount of money on the table because you never understood the value and you didn't create a new business model to capture it is because people don't consider enough options. So I think you need to get people schooled. I think uh, a book that I like in, in this area by Adrian Slowatsky is called The Art of Profit. And it's, it's older, so it doesn't include all the new digital business models, but it's 23 profit models and what makes them tick. And it teaches people for each one. There are many examples of how this happens in different industries in the world. And it's, you know, my view is understanding those archetypal ways of making profit and not trying to invent your own on the fly or just default to your core is critical for capturing value. It's funny, as you were talking about that, I was chuckling because I was with somebody the other the other week, you know, multi-billion pound turnover organization. And they're in a high volume, low margin business. And they have tried and failed to launch services. But then we got into a conversation about how they were pricing services or what their margin aspiration was of services. As you were talking there about Goodyear could have just sold the bits. Yeah. That's what they default to because they're, they're in the sell bits business. And I just said, you know what? I said, when I think about a service, I think about recurring revenue and insanely high margins. You don't because that's not the world that you live in. And so that's probably why services just get squeezed out of your business because you're, nobody in your organization thinks like that. And so if somebody comes in and tries to think like that, the antibodies, all these, all these various layers that you talk about, just, just reject them. You know, the contracts aren't right. The, their billing isn't right. The, right, right, exactly. All of these other things that just make it possible to transact with a customer aren't in place. And then somebody says, well, how much, are these, what's, how much services revenue are we going to do? And somebody goes, I don't know. It's like, oh, well, well, why would we change anything then? Yeah, yeah. And so that's when you set it up separately. And that, that is what Goodyear did. In the incubation, it was a separate division, at least for the term of incubation. And the reason is because if, the, if it won't fit into the accounting system, then keep it on a small desktop accounting system and reconcile once a month. If the liability is different, well, then you're in an incubation with limited risk. Figure out in real time, how you're going to manage the new liability issues. But you do need to, you know, break the mindset of the core product business, or you'll create services businesses that are not very profitable. And then people are wondering, why are we being in the service business? And then somebody will run by them 
at 100 miles an hour and take away their customers because customers love the value proposition. And I, I think with services, people don't recognize it's not just about adding on a different revenue stream for doing something. It's There are six different levers you can pull to make services uh, a better business for your customer. You can profit from that. But yeah, you could. that's the whole idea. Let's look at the services business models. There are only probably four. And now let's say which one might work for us. And if we're just going to default to, well, we're just going to add it as a an add-on revenue stream or a, a stream for data, just recognize you're probably leaving a lot of money on the table or you'll never be able to to sell it. And uh, you know, I think that's a shame, but it happens. For the listeners, what's the book called? My book is called Lean Startup in Large Organizations, and it's subtitled Overcoming Resistance to Innovation. Because I think with Lean Startup, you have to do Lean Startup. I think it works. And you have other practices that you need to do to counter the different fears that that sort of learning orientation to innovation and that experimental approach to innovation induces inside inside the corporate body. So in the book, you take people through, in case they don't already know, here's what Lean Startup is, this is the method. And then you you break the book down into a series of, these are all the fears that the organization is going to have, and then this is the model you use to counteract. So it's very much a, oh, you said earlier on you're an engineer, it's a practitioner's field manual. So if you find yourself in a large organization, or frankly, in my experience, a small business even trying to do something which is non-core, then this is a field manual. And the other thing which I also think is key is you said at Goodyear, this innovation piece of the business reported to the CEO. And I think that reporting to the CEO, I think is one of those things that that's where the resource allocation gets made. He takes some cash off somebody else's pile and puts it in the innovation pile and he keeps everybody away from them. Or she does, whichever. At, at Goodyear, I would say that uh, when I was there, I reported to the dually to the chief technology officer and the chief marketing officer, but the CEO had to weigh in on any incubation and on the opportunity spaces that we played in. But yet the involvement of the CEO, I think, is very important. Not just from I give you the, you know, the resources, but I'll get involved in understanding the spaces that we're working in, you know, I'll engage with my senior leadership team to try to create an environment where maybe there's some air cover for people trying to do something different. And, uh, you know, every place has challenges with that and more at sometimes and less at others, but that's what I think makes it successful. Jim, just a couple of questions. What is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Something that's important to people building these new businesses is to really be aware, I think, of the fact that the people who you see as resisting are not resisting, they're doing their jobs. They are responding the same way you would respond if you were in their jobs. They're just trying to meet the objectives that are theirs, whether they're in IT or sales or marketing or procurement or whatever. So if you understand it from that perspective and you start reasoning from that perspective, saying, look, I validate that basically. I, I agree. There is a potential issue here. How can we minimize it? That's something I wish I had learned earlier in my career than I did. And then the importance of building the relationships, even with the people who are not really directly uh, engaged with a particular innovation, just keeping, 
you know, building the organizational support over time is also very critical. You don't come across as somebody who bulldozes his way through, but it sounds like you're you're thinking about some examples in the past where you just uh, tread on some people's toes. I think it's less that. It's that I didn't get something done that I wanted to because of the way I approached it, right? So, and then you learn and then you go on and then, you know, hopefully you don't repeat the same mistake twice. But I have, I'll just use an example. I've been stuck for six months in trying to move an initiative forward because I couldn't reach agreement with IT about the environment, the technical environment that I would use to develop it. And, uh, you know, very frustrating for me. I'm sure very frustrating for them, very unnecessary for the corporation as a whole. It required some time. I think it could have been approached differently from the beginning, if you, if, if, to put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. And you've, uh, you've already mentioned the art of profit. What other books, and you've mentioned Eric Reese, you know, and Steve Blank. Certainly we've had Steve on the podcast before. Hopefully we'll get Eric on. Um, and we've had Alex Osterwilder on. What other books have had an influence on you or do you recommend people pick up? Or maybe it's just something that you're reading at the moment that you think is fantastic. I'll give you an example of each. I, I think a book by Vijay Govindarajan and Chris Trimble called The Other Side of Innovation, I think is a very good book. At Goodyear, we used to call it the orange book because a lot, a lot of people had a copy of it. And it talked a lot about that relationship between the core business and the new business. You can skim through it, but I referred back to it quite frequently. That's one that uh, I think if people haven't read it, it's it's worth the effort. A book that I'm reading right now that is sort of a compendium of essays is called Aftershock. It's basically a takeoff on Alvin Toffler's uh, Future Shock book, which has now hit its 50th anniversary. And it's the perspectives of, I think, 50 people on Future Shock 50 years later. I find it interesting because I think the biggest challenge still is the ability of our cultures to and our companies to absorb the pace of technology change. That's almost more challenging than developing the technology itself. Understanding what is the meaning of this technology in my context? What does it mean beyond just the utility of it? And so I think this is just a bunch of perspectives some people think it didn't wear well. Some people think it was prescient. I think it's a it's it's sort of fun to go back and look at what a futurist said 50 years after the point and reflect on on his main point. I had the chance to interview Eric and Steve Blank and uh, and Adrian Slawatsky and and Vijay Govindarajan. Uh, another was uh, Ron Adner, who wrote a book called The Wide Lens, and that is, I think, a very helpful book, especially today for people when you think about the fact that you almost almost never control the whole e innovation ecosystem. Even if you're innovating at Goodyear in the realm of, of tires, you still have service networks that aren't owned by you. You have people who are retreading the tires. You own some, you don't own the others. You have installers that are very distributed. If your innovation is a great innovation for the customer, creates a lot of value, but doesn't work within the ecosystem, you need to understand that. And I think that that ecosystem approach to innovation is important. And it's important to think about it early, not after you've already got it done. And now you're confronting the fact that you failed to care for some critical player's concern.
It's almost like the uh, building the product, isn't it? The ecosystem is part of the product. And if you build the product and then you launch it and you haven't thought about something, it's just shooting yourself in the foot. It's never going to work. And, and he, has a, he has a concept called the minimum viable ecosystem, which I think is, uh, is a, a, a good one too. And it let you launch the business without trying to get everybody in the world aligned behind it. And then extending that concept, there's an ecosystem inside your company. And you need to be concerned about who inside your company do you need to get on board to make this thing successful? And what do you have to do to make it work for them? So I think that's a useful perspective as well. Fab. And Jim, one last question. What do you think people should do tomorrow? Listen to this podcast, then what's an action they should take the day after? I, I think, you, you know, the main thing is to ask yourself, wherever you are, what situation you're in, how can you start implementing by getting out of the business and learning from customers, learning what kind of experiments can you do that will help move whatever it is you're working on forward, whether it's learning about costs, willingness to pay, customer value, channel, what can you do? Because even if you don't have a whole infrastructure in place, you can devise experiments that will help you get to the next step. So I'd say, think about how do I do experiments? Yes. I, do you know, I think Steve Blanks, I think it's uh, the answers are not in the office. Right, uh, exactly. You know, you know he's, he's just, he's, he's obsessed about getting people, get out and talk to customers. Get out and talk to customers. So I think that's great yeah, advice. I think he's, he's right. I just finished watching a, a crime drama called Bosch and he's a detective and on his desk, it, uh, he has as a detective, a big poster that says, get off your ass and go knock on doors. Because the only way you're going to solve crimes is by doing that. Yeah. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much indeed for giving us your time today. Thank you very much. It was great to talk with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.